All right, well, just when you thought you were rid of me, I get to change hats over here and lead us in our study of God's Word this morning. So uh, my name is DJ. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity. I don't usually do that, so sorry for, uh, for putting that on you all this morning. But uh, this morning, I do get to lead us in our study of God's Word together, and we are going through the book of Matthew right now. So I'd invite you, if you have a copy of the Bible, to take it out and turn with me to Matthew uh, chapter 19. And we will be looking at verses 13 through 30 together. Matthew 19, verses 13 through 30. Uh, We are going through the gospel of Matthew here at Trinity. We believe the Bible is good and helpful and valuable. And so we want to understand it. We spend a good bit of our time each week studying the scriptures and wanting to know what does this say? What does it mean in its original context? Not what opinions can we read into it? Um, What hobby horse of the pastors can it prop up? But we want to know what God has to say, what Jesus has to say. Uh, And so most often, we just go through the text uh, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, to understand it and then to apply it to our lives today. And right now that has us in Matthew's gospel uh, looking at this example this morning where Jesus is going to talk a little bit about what the model citizen of the kingdom of God looks like. Now, when I say the words model citizen, what image springs to mind? If you were to to think of, to imagine the model American citizen, well, it'd probably be someone who's not getting into trouble, someone who is a good neighbor, someone who gives to charity, maybe maybe someone of, of, of success, someone successful, a small business owner perhaps, someone who in all areas of life just exemplifies what you would want your neighbor to be like. Now, what if I asked you what the model citizen of the kingdom of God looks like? Would it be the same image? Is the model American citizen the same as the model citizen of the kingdom of God? Would you add some extra things on to that description if we're talking kingdom of God, some some righteousness, someone who's just good to everyone around them? Maybe someone of influence like a pastor or someone with a public platform that can help and and influence the lives of others? We've all got this idea of what a model citizen, of what a model church member would look like. But what if I told you that this morning we're going to meet that guy? We're going to meet the model citizen. And he's going to walk away from Jesus disappointed. That's surprising enough. But not only that, what if I told you that the model citizen that Jesus is going to hold up in the guy's place is a five-year-old? Would that surprise you? Would that make you rethink your assumptions about what following Jesus looks like? And most importantly for us this morning, If a five-year-old is more likely to be the poster child for Christianity than a morally upright, successful businessman, then what changes do you need to make in your thinking and in your living to better match that poster? Well, let's look at our text this morning in Matthew 19, and then we will unpack it and study it together. Starting in verse 13, it says, Then children were brought to Jesus, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? 
And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor. Then you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What what then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. We'll dive in and study it together. Our good God and gracious Father, we ask you this morning that you will help us to change our expectations, to better match the truth of who you are and the kingdom you are creating. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you'd give us. What we are not, you'd make us. By the power of your spirit, to the praise of your glorious grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, so we jump right in here to verse 13. We've just heard Jesus talk about marriage and divorce last week. And here he continues on his way. Now, if you remember from last week, he has left Galilee, which has been the home base for his ministry so far. And he's on a journey south, on a journey south towards Judea and Jerusalem, a journey that will eventually end in his arrest and trial and crucifixion. And so we're, we're seeing Matthew's gospel start to progress toward its climax starting to progress forward and to end in what will ultimately be the whole, the sole, the primary purpose of Jesus' coming. But on the way, Jesus is not so busy to not take time to continue to do the things he's been doing, to minister to the crowds, to heal people, to teach, to answer questions, as we'll see shortly, and also to bless children. Verse 13, then children were brought to him, that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And we see right here what, something that we've seen repeated throughout uh, the gospel, throughout the story of, of Jesus that Matthew is weaving, and that is that Jesus values kids, right? Jesus values kids. We've got kids in here this morning. Know that you are important to God. You are important to Jesus. And that's not, for many of us, earth-shattering new news, but I would suggest that it's something we forget far too easily. 
just as the disciples forgot it far too easily. After all, rewind back one chapter to chapter 18. Jesus just talked about the value of kids and their importance and significance in God's kingdom in the opening verses, Matthew 18, 1 through 4. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And here we are one chapter later. Now we don't know how much time has passed. Maybe it's been days. Maybe it's been weeks. Maybe it's been months. But children are brought to Jesus so he can bless them, so he can pray for them. And what's the response of the disciples? Verse 14 and verse 13, the disciples rebuked the people. They tell the people, get the kids out of here. Jesus doesn't have time for this. Don't you see all the, the people that need healing? Don't you see all the crowds that need to hear from this man? He doesn't have time to pray for kids. But Jesus will have none of that. He tells the disciples to let the kids come to him and get out of the way, right? Verse 14, Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Jesus has time for the kids. Jesus has time to pray for them, to bless them, to give them significance and importance in a world that ignored them. And notice the reason that he gives in verse 14. For such, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the people who inherit Jesus' kingdom are going to be like these small kids. The world looks at kids and sees insignificance, unimportance, right? Kids don't vote. They don't run businesses. They don't lead successful organizations. They spend a lot of their time doing things that as adults we would dismiss as silly and insignificant. But Jesus looks at kids and says, there's something more going on here than meets the eye. The disciples think it's a waste of time to have these kids in Jesus' presence. And yet, according to Jesus, his kingdom belongs to the very people that this world sees as insignificant and unimportant. Jesus doesn't evaluate significance in the same way you and I do. Jesus doesn't base importance on how much we can do, how much we have to offer. But his value is placed in completely different reasons. And so Jesus says, let the kids come. And Jesus takes the time and he lays his hands on them and then goes on his way. It's a short anecdote, right? Just a few verses in the text. But I'm going to suggest to you it's a very important one for us to understand. Especially in light of the next story that we're about to see. And the contrast that we can see between how Jesus approaches the two events. Jesus holds up kids as model kingdom citizens. The very people that, that the people think are unimportant, Jesus says, these are the ones who you got to be like if you want to be in my family, if you want to be in my kingdom. And then look at verse 16. Look at this next person that we meet. Now, this is the polar opposite of the kids, right? This is a guy who's going places. This is a guy who, in the eyes of all the disciples and all the people, is important. This is the guy that, that Jesus wants to follow him after all, right? This man comes up to Jesus and was exactly the sort that the disciples would think is worth Jesus' time. Nobody's getting in the way of this guy coming up. 
Verse 16, behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So let's, let's ask what we know about this man. Well, down in verse 20, he's going to be described as young, which in that culture would have commonly referred to someone between the ages of 20 and 40. So this is a guy in his 20s or in his 30s who's coming to Jesus and asking this question. And we can gather from this account that he's wealthy. He's someone of means and of influence. And in fact, if you look at the account in Mark's gospel, Mark explicitly calls that out and describes him as rich. If you look at Luke's account, we get a detail that that Matthew and Mark don't include. Luke describes the man as a ruler, a term that usually means someone uh, in a position of authority in the synagogue. So think of this guy like a, a deacon in the local church, something about like that. In other words, this guy would appear to be the model citizen of first century Judaism. In the culture of Jesus' day, this is the guy who you want to be like. He's young. He's rich, he has possessions, he's an upstanding citizen in in terms of the fact that he's a leader in the local synagogue. This is someone who's who's righteous, who is of influence. We've got the whole world laid out in front of him, exactly the sort that Jesus would want to get on his train, right? Well, it's interesting because the guy comes to Jesus with basically everything going for him. But it would appear that life is not all a bed of roses for him, right? Something is troubling him. Something is bothering him. Because he comes to Jesus with a question. And he says, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? No doubt this guy has heard of Jesus teaching about the kingdom. Maybe he's come and followed in person himself and heard what Jesus has to say and is very taken by it, right? The coming of the kingdom of God. And he wants to know, what do I need to do to get in? What do I need to do to be a part? He wants to know what he has to do to inherit eternal life. Now, one little quick bit of housekeeping. We're going to use some different terminology this morning uh, to describe the same reality, right? This guy asks, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Now, later on, Jesus in verse 23 is going to talk about entering the kingdom of heaven or entering the kingdom of God. In verse 25, the disciples are going to talk about being saved. All of this terminology is talking about the same thing. So when you read inherit eternal life, enter the kingdom, be saved, these are all uh, terms that are synonymous, right? We're all talking about the same reality, about becoming a part of God's family, going to heaven. We have our own Christian jargon today that we use for this, but the reality is the same. When we talk about inheriting the kingdom, inheriting eternal life, being saved, we're talking about following Jesus, entry into his family. What do I have to do to go to heaven, to to be saved, to be one of Jesus' people. This guy wants to know how to get there. And right off the bat, Jesus seeks to unsteady the guy. Now, we just saw with the kids that he pushes away those who would rebuke them and instantly just gathers them in and blesses them and cares for them. Here, from the very beginning, he's trying to throw this guy off his feet a little bit, right? He asks in verse 17, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. See, this guy is coming to Jesus wanting to know what good deeds, and and as we're about to see, he's got a pretty high estimation of his own good deeds. What good deeds he has to do to enter the kingdom. And Jesus is pointing out here, as he so often does throughout Matthew's gospel, 
there's a higher standard of goodness altogether. The standard of goodness that we seek to follow in the kingdom is not good enough. It's God. It's the one who is good, the one who is perfect, the one who is righteous. But the enemy gives the man a pretty straightforward answer. You want to inherit eternal life? Keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. Something that would have been very familiar to any first century Jew. They would have known the Old Testament law, the commands, the Ten Commandments, and all of the ceremonial and moral instructions that go along with them. And the man then wants specifics, right? Keep the commandments. Verse 18, he said to him, which ones? The guy wants to know, okay, okay, I know the commandments are important, but what are the really important ones, right? What are the really important commands that I have to make sure I get if I'm going to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus gives him a list. Now, here's where we need to pay close attention. Because at first glance, it seems like Jesus is just rattling off some random commandments, right? He just starts pulling them out of the bag, you know, the the big ones that are really important. You shall not murder, commit adultery, honor your father and mother, don't steal, all these things. But I'm going to suggest to you that what appears at first glance to be a random list is actually anything but. Jesus is being very purposeful in what commands he mentions and what commands he doesn't, right? Now, the Ten Commandments are typically split into what they call two tables. The first table of the law, the second table of the law. The first table of the law is the first four commandments, which are focused around our relationship with God, right? Have no other gods before me. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Honor the Sabbath day. These things that are, that are expressly around our relationship to God. The second table is commands five through ten, which is all around our relationships to other people, right? And those are the ones that Jesus quotes here. You shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, etc. So these two tables of the law, our relationship with God and our relationship with our neighbor. What Jesus lists here, the commands that he gives are numbers five through nine. So he gives us all but one of the commands from the second table of the law. And then he adds on, love your neighbor as yourself, which he has said elsewhere is kind of a summary statement of the whole second table, right? If you were going to summarize commands 5 through 10, you would summarize it as love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus gives commands 5 through 9 and a summary statement of the second table and said, these are the commands that you have to follow. So what does he leave out? But he leaves out the whole first table about our relationship with God, and he leaves out commandment number 10 about coveting. So why does he leave these out? Is it because they're not as important as the ones he listed? I'm going to suggest to you, not at all. I'm going to suggest to you, he leaves those out because those are exactly where this man has his issues. It's exactly where he's struggling. And by going to those in a moment, Jesus is going to highlight exactly what that issue is in this young man's heart. So this man feels pretty good about the commandments that Jesus has listed, right? It's like, I'm actually in in pretty good shape there. He replies in in verse 20, all these I have kept. I'm good. I got all that down. But notice that he still realizes something is off. There's got to be more than that, right? Because he says, what do I still lack? What do I still need? And Jesus then decides to go ahead and put his finger on exactly what this young man needs. He's still lacking one thing. 
Jesus says, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. So here is where those omissions from the first list come in. These are the things the young man lacks. If he loved God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, which is how Jesus summarizes the first table of the law, commandments one through four that he left out. If this man loved God with all his heart, all his soul, all his mind, all his strength, he wouldn't balk at giving up everything and coming to follow Jesus. God in the flesh. If he wasn't consumed with coveting possessions and things, he'd be able to let go of them. Those first four commandments and that tenth commandment are where he's tripping up. And we see that in his reaction. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus put his finger on exactly what this man's problem was. His love of his stuff. Specifically, his love of his stuff more than his love of God. His things, his possessions, and all that went along with those was an idol that he worshipped more than he worshipped God. He didn't love the Lord God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength because he loved his things with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He might have thought he was good on those other commandments, but this one was a bridge too far. And so away he goes. This man who seemed like the perfect follower for Jesus, right? Young, wealthy, influential, respectable and moral, earnest. I mean, he came to Jesus asking, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Right? This like is the pastor's dream guy who just comes up to you out of nowhere. He's like, what do I have to do to be saved? We're like, jackpot. This is the guy. He's interested in spiritual things. He has every qualification that you could conceive of for being a part of Jesus's kingdom. But there's a funny thing we learn about Jesus's kingdom here. As it turns out, and as we just saw in the last story, Jesus's kingdom is, is kind of like the kids ride at the amusement park, the kids section of the park. And whereas a lot of the rides at the amusement park, you've got to be this tall to be able to ride. You ever go there and some of the rides in the kids section, you have to be shorter than this to be able to ride. Well, Jesus' kingdom is kind of like that. It's kind of like the kids' section at the park, and this guy, it turns out, is a little too big to ride. Thinks a little bit too much of himself to be able to go into the kids' section, to ride the kiddie rides. Do you see the contrast that Matthew is making? You see why it's no accident that the story of the kids coming to Jesus in 13 through 15 is placed right next to the story of this guy coming to Jesus in verses 16 through 22. 16 through 22. Scholar and author Craig Blomberg summarizes it this way, the, the placing of these two stories next to each other. He says, The children turned out to be nearer to the kingdom than most might have suspected. But the rich man demonstrates that he is farther away from the kingdom than most would have guessed. As has happened so many times in Matthew's gospel, our expectations are subverted. The people that we think are the people to follow aren't actually the people to follow. The ones who we'd never give a moment of our time, that's who Jesus says, be like this. Model after these people. So how do we react to this object lesson? From little kids to a big shot. 
Well, Jesus turns this into a teaching moment for us. As the man walks away sad in verse 22, in verse 23, Jesus pivots and he starts to talk to his disciples, right? This is an inner circle teachable moment. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. We would do well to stop and pay close attention to what he's saying right here. One, because he emphasizes it. Right, so he makes his statement, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, and anytime you see repetition in the Bible, it means emphasis, it means importance. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus makes his statement, he repeats his statement, and he uses a crazy, nonsensical, hyperbolic illustration to show just how serious he is. You know, I've seen camels at the zoo. They're decently large animals. I've seen needles in that little eye of the needle, the little hole that you thread the string through. I am no scientist, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle. And Jesus says that would actually be easier than a rich person getting into the kingdom of heaven. Now, why should that give us serious pause? After all, most of us would probably not consider ourselves rich, right? But on a global scale, every single one of us in this room is rich. We are the one percenters. You have more wealth than 99% of the people on this planet. And if that's the case, then we need to understand what it is Jesus is saying here. Because if it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven, and from a global cosmic scale, we're all rich men and women, then we need to sit and think about this for a minute. Like camel through the eye of a needle type hard. The disciples got this. The disciples understood that Jesus is holding up something that's pretty crazy here. Because look at their reaction in verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? Nobody's got a shot. Now, why would they say this? It's, it's worth unpacking here for a second. They say this because in the culture of first century Judaism, wealth and rich, richness of possessions was seen as God's blessing right? Rich people were blessed by God. You look throughout the history of the Old Testament, and we see many examples of people like Job, of people like Abraham, of people like Solomon, who were rich in wealth as a, as a result of God's blessing of their lives. It happened. So the assumption that the people of Jesus' day made was, if you're rich, you obviously are blessed by God, which must mean you're doing something right if God gave you that wealth. So see here what Jesus is saying, or what the disciples are saying. They're like, wait a minute. If the rich people are the people God likes and blesses, and they can't get in, then what shot do a bunch of schmucks like us have? I don't have anything. And they think, oh, I've got no shot. Who can be saved? And notice what Jesus says. He looks at them and says, with man, it's actually impossible. You are exactly picking up what I'm putting down, disciples. Nobody can be saved. With man, this is impossible. But with God, 
all things are possible. With God, all things are possible. So what's the deal with wealth? Let's, let's think about this as people who are wealthy people. The wealth is not the problem. The riches are not inherently wrong. Like, if it were, then we could all just take a vow of poverty like some monks or gurus do, and we'd all be in great shape, right? The problem isn't the wealth, necessarily. The problem is the sense of self-sufficiency that the wealth creates. The problem is the sense of self-sufficiency that the wealth creates. Right? If we're going to enter Jesus' kingdom, how do we have to do it? Like little children. That's the goal. We've got to be humble. We've got to be trusting. We've got to be dependent. Do the words humble, trusting, and dependent characterize most of the rich people that you see in our culture? Like, if you, if you look around you, the more wealthy someone gets, is it true that they tend to become more humble, trusting, and dependent? No. The wealth, the riches, the self-sufficiency that they create actually counter the qualities that Jesus says we need to have if we're to be a part of his kingdom. British preacher Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, wealth is far more a hindrance than a help to those who would enter the kingdom of God. And we can see that reality with the, those rich people over there, right? You know, the people who are, are rich in our eyes, which usually the way that works is, is a rich person is someone who has a little bit more money than I do. That tends to be the, the, the most common unspoken definition of wealth and richness in our culture. But it's true for me too, right? I look at my life and I find myself dealing with anxieties when money is tight. When unexpected expenses arise and the budget seems dodgy and I'm not sure how we're going to get from A to B, I find myself tensing up, feeling anxious, worrying. But when there's money in the bank and times are good, I tend to be more relaxed and at ease. Why is that? God's my provider, right? He's my provider when money's tight. He's my provider when money's not. So why do my attitudes fluctuate the less or the more that I have at a given moment? Well, that's because I'm really trusting in myself far too often. My possessions betray a self-sufficiency that is tied up in my very soul. That I think I'm enough for me. I can handle my problems. And so if we're going to sit here this morning and we're going to hear Jesus say, easier for a rich man to go, th- or for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, we're going to say with the disciples, that's impossible. That can't happen. Who on earth has a chance to be saved? We should respond And we should hear Jesus' response of, it's going to take a miracle. How does somebody get saved? What chance does anybody have? They need a miracle. They need something to happen to them that is unnatural, that they cannot do, that we cannot do on our own. And there Jesus says, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now, I'm going to guess you've probably heard that verse before if you've been in the church for any length of time. 
But did you ever know that this is the context in which we find it? That verse is not talking about overcoming long shot odds to achieve some success in your personal life, to have your best life now. It's talking about the fact that you and I can even enter God's kingdom to begin with. It's impossible with man, but with God, all things are possible. If we're going to enter God's kingdom, we need to get small. Like camel fit through the eye of a needle, get small. And that's a level of small that I can't bring about, that you can't bring about, that only God can bring about. It takes a miracle. Almost as miraculous as making a dead person live again. Which coincidentally is another way that God describes what it looks like to come into his kingdom, right? Ephesians 2, 5 through 7. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, we're dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It is a miracle to make a dead person live again. I've never seen it happen. I've never watched somebody come up out of the ground. Just as I've never seen a camel fit through the eye of the needle. These are the pictures. These are the word pictures that God paints of what it looks like to be a part of his family. To get into his kingdom. To inherit eternal life. To be saved. Pick your term. This is what it looks like. And there's only one who can do that. There's only one who can manufacture that kind of change. That change that is needed for someone to enter the kingdom of God is nothing short of a miracle. For that rich young man, for me, and for you. So hearing this, Peter has something to say. Because of course he does. It's Peter. Verse 27, then Peter said in reply, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then shall we have? Peter's picking up what Jesus is putting down here. He notices that the point that this guy balked on was leaving everything and following him. And Peter's like, we left everything and followed him. Cool. What, what, what do we get, Jesus? It's hard to read Peter's heart, right? Like exactly what's going on. But one thing we can see is, is Jesus doesn't like rebuke him. He doesn't, he doesn't squash him and say, now, Peter, come on. Why are you thinking about yourself? What Jesus says here is, yeah, you did. And it's going to be worth it. It's absolutely going to be worth it. Truly, I say to you, verse 28, in the new world, when the son of man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. What will be in store for us in the kingdom, Peter asks? Jesus' answer, everything. Everything. Life everlasting. Jesus' shared authority over a new remade creation right? 
When he says, truly I say to you, in the new world, the Greek there literally for new world is in the regeneration. When I remake everything new the way it should be, you'll sit on thrones as rulers. And that's not specific to just the disciples. That's a promise for all of us that Jesus is going to share his authority with us in this new creation. Blessings beyond imagination, right? Whatever you left, you're going to have a hundred times more. Who's ready to hear this, to respond to this? Well, the answer is it's not usually those who have power or wisdom or fame or influence. It tends to be the low, the unimportant, the forgotten. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Why? Because you have to get small to enter the kingdom. But if you can, by God's grace, get small. If God works that miracle in your heart to transform you to see things differently, whatever you leave behind, and that's going to look different for everybody, it'll be worth the cost. Jesus called that rich young man to leave everything, to sell everything, to come and follow him. Joseph of Arimathea is going to be a wealthy man who we're going to meet in a few chapters. He's going to give Jesus his tomb to be buried in. So Joseph of Arimathea doesn't give away his fortune. He's a wealthy man, a man of influence. Jesus doesn't give him the same directive to sell everything. But he's also very quickly willing to part with his family plot of land, his family tomb, in order to see Jesus buried. It's going to look different for everybody. But many who are first shall be last, and the last first. We've got to get small. We've got to get low if we're going to enter God's kingdom. In the book of 1 Corinthians, as Paul is talking to the church, we see this reality come out in how he describes this group of people. How he describes this group of people, not as a bunch of all-stars, not as the A-team that God has called together, but we'll listen to this. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Are you ready to get small like that? That all of your boasting would be in him and him alone. So how do we apply this this week? A few questions. Do you have the same love for the unimportant and insignificant that Jesus did? Or do you spend your time trying to gain the attention and the approval of those who are the movers and shakers? Do you have your eyes on the seemingly unimportant or are you trying to see how can I get in with the crowd that can get me ahead? Do you have those eyes for the unimportant in the church? At your job, do you want to get in good with the boss so that you can start climbing the ladder? 
Or do you look for those who, who might be struggling, who might be on the outside looking in, who have nothing to offer your career? What about at school? Are you trying to spend time with the crowd who is cool, that everybody likes, that'll get you more friends? Or do you have eyes for that person who sits in the corner of the cafeteria by themselves, doesn't have anybody to eat with? What about on social media? Do you equate success with how many followers you have, with how many people you can influence, with gaining that, if, if, if this person could just retweet me, I'd be a big deal. Or in your words, do you simply look to build up those who nobody sees and don't care what kind of reputation you get for it? Which of the commandments tempt you to walk away sad? If you were the rich young man who came to Jesus, which ones would he mention that you'd be like, yep, I got those? Which ones would he leave out? And then highlight to cause you to realize that's where I'm missing the mark. What are you tempted to worship, to love more than God? Christians, do you see your salvation as miraculous? Do you see the change of heart that you've experienced in Christ to be on the same level as a dead person living, to be on the same level as a camel going through the eye of a needle, to be something that God and God alone did? Or do you see your salvation as something that you did that Jesus kind of helped with? Does the God you believe in expect you to just do your best and that's enough? Or does he require you to drive your camel through the needle's eye? How do you see salvation? Because that's going to change the way you respond to it. The thankfulness that comes out of it. The life change that results from it. And then this morning, have you ever trusted in Jesus? Or are you still like this rich young man trying to just figure out, what do I need to do to get in? What are the boxes I have to check? Have you ever trusted in the only one who can help you to get as small as you need to get? And are you trusting him today? Maybe you'd say, hey, 30 years ago, yep, I trusted in Jesus. But if you look at your life right now, does it bear any resemblance to what Jesus says it should look like? It's not enough that you followed him one day in the past. When the Bible tells us to evaluate our salvation, it's always look at today. Are you following him? Are you trusting him right now? Maybe you're here this morning or you're watching on our live stream and you need to trust him for the first time. Let's have a conversation. We'd love to talk about what that means, how you begin to follow Christ in that way. But maybe you've been following Christ for years, but you need to realize that it's not a done deal in the past. And that you need to be following and trusting in him and not yourself right here and right now. We can talk through that as well. But wherever you're at, whatever the case, see things differently. See people differently. And as we walk this life together as a, as a local church, as a family, as God's people, let's help one another to get small so that we might enter the kingdom the way that Jesus says is the only way in. Let's pray.